Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the longest strike against studios in Screen Actors Guild history came to an end last week, with SAG-AFTRA's negotiating committee members saying the deal they were able to hammer out raises wages, includes bonuses for successful streaming shows, and protections against the threat of artificial intelligence. It allows the industry to go forward. It does not block AI, but it makes sure that performers are protected, their rights to consent are protected, their rights to fair compensation, and their rights to employment are protected. We'll learn more this hour about what actors really won, how quickly productions can get back on track, and why it still might be difficult for Hollywood to ever fully recover. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. SAC members begin voting today on the tentative three-year deal reached with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. The agreement last week ended the longest actor strike against major studios in Hollywood history. The strike lasted 118 days and saw film and TV productions come to a halt, actors unable to promote their work, and support services and small businesses that relied on the industry struggle. Eric Goins was on the negotiating committee and is a TV and film actor whose credits include Ride Along, Dirty Grandpa, and The Righteous Gemstones. Eric Goins, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So take us into the negotiating room. What was the mood at SAG on Wednesday as negotiations ended and a deal with the studios was reached? Well, I tell you, it was total exuberance. Um, we were very excited to, uh, to to secure our deal, and um, our negotiating committee felt like we, we um, maximized our leverage and got the best possible deal we could um, to really protect our members from artificial intelligence, um, but also create an environment where fair, reasonable compensation will allow our members to have a pathway forward to build a meeting, to continue and to build a meaningful career in this industry. Yeah, I want to dig into some of the gains, but but just wanted to ask you one thing we were hearing throughout, because this was such a long strike. One thing we were hearing from SAG negotiators was that the AMPTP, the Alliance for Motion Picture and Television Producers, was essentially refusing to meaningfully engage in talks. When did that dynamic change? And, and why do you think it did? Yeah, I mean, that dynamic changed when we came back from being on strike and we came back to the table in L.A. Um, I think it changed because, you know, on day one, um, 
Duncan Crabtree, Ireland, our national executive director and friend Rusher, our national president, uh, were very clear to the AMPTP not to um, misinterpret or, or diminish our resolve. And I think it took them some time to understand that we were, in fact, resolved in our abilities to um, to come back to the table and get what we want and to hold out until we got what we want. And so um, I think they realized that um, we were very, very serious. We weren't coming back and we were we were resolute in our need for the things that we were asking for. And I think it didn't not until the CEOs came in the room did I think um, uh, real movement started to take place. Mm. Well, the agreement that you hammered out, it's being voted on starting today uh, by members. So let's run through some of it, especially the provisions related to AI. We heard a Mm -hmm. lot about that. Can you summarize what actors were seeking, but also what's been agreed to? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, at its base, we were looking for consent, compensation, and control over the use of our images. That's kind of the best way to think about it from a 10,000-foot standpoint. And how that's done um, is open to interpretation, but that's what we wanted. We wanted to make sure that should artificial intelligence be used um, or digital replicas um, are used, that we had... Informed consent, which is different than just consent. So informed consent being that, you know, it's a reasonable description of how it's going to be used. We wanted to make sure that our members would be fairly compensated for it. uh, So that way they're not using digital replicas or AI to replace our performers. And then we wanted control. We wanted to make sure that if we were scanned and our digital replicas were used, then uh, they would only be used within the context of the project that we agreed to them being used. And um, we accomplished that on on all fronts, really. And, um, you know, going down the list of things that have currently been agreed to from a general standpoint is that, you know, um, producers have to give our members 48 hours notice um, that they intend to um, uh, scan us. There has to be clear and conspicuous consent for creation, which means clear means a reasonable description and conspicuous means it has to be very clear as to what they're asking. This kind of consent can't be hidden in a contract. The time spent in the creation of the replica is considered work time. Um, our members will be compensated, um, which includes pension and health and residuals um, for the use based on the time as if it were as if it were the actual person doing the work. And, um, and, uh, and, and that includes, that includes, uh, that's employment-based digital replicas and independently created digital replicas. So, um, comprehensively, we've created a lot of consent, um, guidelines and compensation for our members in the areas of AI. And I don't know there, how long, how deep you want me to dig, but we can get really deep. Well, let AI. me just ask you really quickly about some of the pushback on some concessions that were made sure. uh, with regard to AI. One of them was from Justine Bateman, who was concerned about, you know, how the deal still allows studios to train AI models on real actors' performances, and also this idea that they could use a digital double without consent or compensation if the project was comment, criticism, scholarship, satire, or parody, things like that. Can you talk about some of the concessions that were made on AI and why those concessions were made? Yeah, so I I don't really consider them concessions, so I'll just kind of change the language there a little bit. So what what you're talking in the first part is generative AI. So the learning model of uh, artificial intelligence. And so ideally, would we have liked to um, required um, better um, restrictions on the use of generative AI? Absolutely. No contract is perfect. Um, And that's part of the bargaining process. But what we did establish is anytime that the producers 
use any form of generative AI, which means that no recognizable um, performer is being used. So it's almost an amalgamation of different. So let's say uh, they want my nose and someone else's eyes and someone else's ears to create this person that really doesn't exist. Anytime that the producers use that, they are required to notify and bargain with the union over that, um, that, that use of generative AI. And what that does is two things. It allows us to know how prevalent the use is, but it also allows us to meaningfully engage as to how it can be used. So to, to suggest that we don't have any control over that area of the contract, I think is inaccurate. Um, I think we do have control. I think generative AI for, for, for SAG-AFTRA, the most important um, things to combat in this negotiation were the use of digital replicas, because that mm -hmm. is something that is being done right now. Yeah. The idea of generative AI is neither financially or technologically capable of doing the things that I think we all think it can do one day as of right now. So if we have to prioritize um, um, our gains, um, we were able to really get the gains that we needed on the stuff that's happening right now. And I can tell you that on the, in the area of generative AI, we presented our ask in the, in the bargaining on day one. And 35 days after negotiations and 118-day strike, we did not get the generative AI provisions that we achieved in this contract until day 118. So it gives you an idea of how, um, how hard the AMPT was pushing back. And we feel that in the area of generative AI, we've actually achieved quite a bit because they can't do it in the dark. They have to do it in broad daylight. The union will be aware of what's being done. And they will have to meaningfully bargain with us to do it, which means we will have a, a finger on the pulse of how it's affecting our, our industry. And keep in mind, we are renegotiating this contract, and now I believe it's 31 months. So we'll be back at the table again very, very soon to continue this negotiations. Um, and as for the second half of your question, I can't remember the second half of your question. If you want to repeat it to me. I there was concern that the digital double could, in fact, be used without consent or compensation in certain types of things like docudramas oh, or yeah. scholarship work and things like that quickly. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's great. So those issues have to do with First Amendment and the provisions. Uh, currently, um, the courts are have those types of issues um, at the courts right now. And so we're waiting to hear what the courts will do in regards to those type of First Amendment issues as it pertains to satire and those other things that you listed. Um, and so the, the provisions in our agreement for digital replicas as it pertains to those First Amendment categories is no different than an in-person um, uh, rights um, as it pertains to uh, First Amendment um, projects. So all the rights that you have as a real person are the same as your digital replica, no more or no less. And until the courts figure out um, uh, how they're going to deal with these issues, which I would mention SAG-AFTRA is intimately involved in helping mm. to um, steer that conversation, um, there's no less rights involved with that. Eric Goins was on the negotiating committee during the SAG-AFTRA strike, also Atlanta local president of SAG-AFTRA. Talk to me about streaming, how streaming yeah. payments and distributions will change as a result of this contract. Yeah, that's a, a great question. So streaming has always been a problem for us because um, uh, it's never provided the same type of revenue streams that linear television has or traditional television has in the past. And so we, we kind of we succeeded on two fronts. The first front is that we got um, uh, we got a two, per, two and a half percent increase on the caps 
um, for residuals. Uh, we also uh, were able to address a, um, an issue of advanced pay residuals, which is some of our highest earners were, were having their um, residuals included in their um, initial compensation. And we were able to separate that and limit the amount of residuals that are available to a high earner um, uh, when they go to work. Um, the idea of grandfathering shows uh, who were paying lower residuals um, because they were created in the past under a different contract is gone. So all the shows and seasons moving forward will be held to this new uh, th these new increases. Um, as I said, we increased the ceilings. But more importantly, we found a whole new bucket of revenue for our members. And that was one of the things that was really important. And um, we started this conversation as a revenue share. And what it became is a success bonus that is based on um, I don't know how detailed you want me to get into it, but over the course of the first 90 days, any show that is watched by 20% of the domestic um, viewers or subscribers will be eligible for a, um, a, a, a streaming bonus. 75% of that, uh, that money will go to the people that were actually on those shows that, that created the metric for payment. And then 25% will go into a fund um, that will be determined how it will be distributed by a board of trustees. But the idea behind that is to, um, to distribute that money to a greater subsection of our membership so that more individuals and more members across the spectrum can um, share in the successes of the streaming model. Yeah, so it would go to additional performers, not necessarily the ones who were in this successful streaming show. Yeah, it can go to it can go to whoever the trustees um, yeah. uh, decide who it can go to. So it it kind of it rewards the people who created the fund, but also allows an opportunity for us to share amongst a larger swath of our membership. We're coming up on a break, but do you want to share any final personal reflections about these past four months or the negotiations before we go? Yeah, I would say it was a great honor and a privilege to be a part of this and to represent our members in a way that's meaningful. I think we fought hard and I think in any bargaining, uh, there are give and takes, but I am confident that this this contract represents a really good effort um, and the best protections and compensation we can offer to our members. TV and film actor, negotiating committee member, Eric Goins, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. After nearly four long months, actors represented by SAG-AFTRA are returning to work as voting to ratify the new three-year contract with studios gets underway today. 
When actors walked out July 14th, they joined striking writers, launching Hollywood's first twin strike since 1960. And joining me now is Eric Haywood, a writer, producer, and director, WGA board member, Writers Guild of America board member, and was on the Guild's negotiating committee during this year's strike. His TV shows also include Empire and Law and Order, Organized Crime. Eric Haywood, so glad to have you back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You've joined us a couple of times over the course of the writer's nearly five-month strike, even longer than the actor's strike. So actually, first, what was your reaction to the end of the SAG strike? Because you've commented on the solidarity between actors and writers throughout. Yeah, I tell you, I was I was thrilled on behalf of SAG-AFTRA, but I wasn't surprised. And what I mean by that is I spent a lot of time um, on the picket line uh, for the last several months, both as part of the writer strike and also walking the picket line in support of SAG-AFTRA. And I spent a lot of time talking to SAG members. Um, and I don't even mean like high profile, big name actors. I mean the rank and file members of that union. And I can tell you, they were, they were fired up. They were not willing to back down unless they got a deal that they felt was was satisfactory. So when the when the tentative agreement was announced, it was very clear to me that um, they would not have reached that agreement had they not gotten terms that they felt either met or exceeded what they were asking for. Yeah, there was some speculation that once the writers strike ended once the deal was made in September between writers and major studios. The studios were pretty motivated to try to resolve the situation with SAG, in part because there was still time, you know, to basically uh, rescue some of the productions and award shows and so on if they did. Do you think that was the case? Do you think that helped? I think common sense would have dictated that the uh, studios would have accelerated their negotiations with the with with SAG-AFTRA on the heels of coming to terms with the writers. But one of the things that I learned is that common sense doesn't really apply uh, <laughs> to these situations, and and it has been it has been astonishing witnessing up close the sort of self inflicted wound that this this industry uh, uh, has has um, created for itself. Um, so. Ironically, it did not surprise me that it took a little bit longer um, for the companies to actually get serious with SAG and finally uh, uh, buckle down and, and have a serious um, round of negotiations, which didn't seem to happen until quite a while after the writers um, struck their deal. Yeah. Well, let me invite listeners to join the conversation. Your reaction to the end of the strike? Are you a member of SAG? Your reaction to the contract that was just described before the break? Are you going to vote to approve it? Maybe you have questions about the writer's contract and what they were able to gain. If you work in Hollywood, if you work in the film or TV industry, how did the strike impact you? If you're a viewer, what are you hoping the end of the SAG strike will mean for the shows that you've missed, the movies that uh, you're excited to see that maybe were delayed. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So I mentioned that uh, the deal was struck in September, of course, and AI, the use of AI for writing was a major point of contention. Can you remind us what writers got in the contract, new contract? Yeah, sure. Broadly speaking, um, there were a number of what we call guardrails 
that we were seeking to institute. And not unlike sag after and I want to be clear, we, we were not privy to the specifics of what happened in the sag after negotiations. Um, but as information begins to trickle out, I begin to feel a very strong sense of, of deja vu because what I'm hearing uh, in terms of how the studios treated sag after is is almost identical to the way that they dealt with the Writers Guild. And one prime example is we told them from the very beginning of our, of our negotiations, even before we had to go on strike, that artificial intelligence was, was uh, a high priority for the Writers Guild. And we needed to discuss it. And they told us pretty much to our faces, we will not discuss this with you. We will not institute any sort of guardrails that, that limit our ability to profit off of this technology now or in the future. And, you know, we had our own members. Once we went on strike and the strike began to drag on, we had our own members saying to some of us on the negotiating committee, what is taking so long? Why can't we just come to an agreement? And we had to explain to people without giving too much detail, it's impossible to come to an agreement with people who flat out will not talk to you. Um, so for, for months, they literally would not meet with us. They would not negotiate uh, uh, until they got to a point where by whatever internal calculus they apply, they you know, realized that the writers were not going to come back to work until uh, we had a serious negotiation. And that's when the CEOs of several of these companies finally sort of like came off the bench and got in the game. Yeah. And that, make, that helped us get to a fairly rapid uh, 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 solution. Uh, as it applies to AI, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that that uh, uh, the AI situation sort of overlaps between writers and actors. But there are a lot of things that are very different, um, obviously. But one of the one of the big wins that we that we achieved was the idea that uh, artificial intelligence technology cannot be used to generate literary material. Mm. One of the big concerns that writers had as this technology sort of evolves and emerges is that it will advance to the point where writers basically become obsolete and quote unquote, the robots take our jobs. Um, um, but putting up the guardrail that AI cannot generate literary material was a very um, substantial uh, win for the writers. Another one being the idea that writers cannot be required or forced to use AI in the scripts that they write, either for movies or television or any other um, covered uh, uh, project. Um, um, once again, there was a concern that uh, if we can use AI to generate a first draft of a script, we can then hire a human writer to come in and give it the, the human touch, but we can pay that writer a lot less because AI gave us the first draft and we think that that, that means AI did all the heavy lifting. Um, um, so requiring that AI cannot write uh, uh, the basic underlying literary material and that writers can't be forced to use that material sort of against their will or as a condition of employment, those two were substantial. Um, but like actors, we knew that AI getting a complete and total ban on the use of artificial intelligence was pretty much a non-starter. It was, it was a pipe dream to think that we could ever completely get the studios to agree to never use it under any circumstances. So guardrails became sort of like the, 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 the key word and the guiding principle for how we approached AI. The last sort of like major uh, uh, win that we, that we um, successfully negotiated was what we call disclosure. 
So you have to, if you're going to hire a writer, whether you're a producer, whether you are a studio executive, and let's say one day you think, I'd like to make a movie about the teenage years of Abraham Lincoln. And then you feed that prompt into AI and it spits out a script. And then you go to hire a human writer to basically do a rewrite. You are obligated, you're required to disclose to that potential writer that AI was part of the process of the genesis of this project because that writer may have a moral objection to even touching a project that was generated by AI. They may have a copyright concern because this is all still new technology and it's unsettled law and they don't wanna put in years potentially of work on something that may never see the light of day because you know the, the AI generated material drew from other copyright protected um, sources. Um, so uh, uh, if the writer willingly chooses to take on a project that was originated by artificial intelligence, it's their choice, um, but the, the employer is required to disclose. So it can't be done uh, sort of in secret. They have I to see. disclose that AI is sort of part of the, the, the food chain, if you will. Yes. I'm struck as I'm listening to you describe the guardrails on AI that writers negotiated, uh, what Eric Goins earlier mentioned that actors negotiated. Can you just put in sort of context for us just how new they are? Like sort of the first time it sounds like this is really being articulated, though, of course, there are still, you know, things that you'll be watching out for down the road. Well, yeah, it's very new. Um, it's so new that, like I said earlier, the studios were were adamant about uh, uh, resisting the idea of guardrails because they didn't want to agree to something that might limit their ability to exploit this technology in the future, which is understandable from a corporate sort of mindset, but from the employee mindset, from the creative mindset, we had sort of an, an equal and opposite set of concerns that if we give away the farm now, you know, there were lots of people who said, AI is still evolving. Let's not make a big deal of it now. Let's see where it goes. And then in three years, when it's time to negotiate the next contract, we can fight for it then. And historically, uh, it has been proven that when something is sort of like emergent, you need to get it codified into your contract before it's too late. Because if we come back three years from now, or at this point, two and a half years from now, who knows where the, how, how widespread artificial intelligence will be. And if we try to put in guardrails in the next round of negotiations, we already know what the studios will say. They will say, sorry, it's too late. This is how we do things. If you wanted it that bad, you should have fought for it back in 2023. It's too late. The ship is the ship has sailed. So so it was critical that we sort of like put a, put our foot down and tried to get these guardrails in place now rather than later. And I, it sounds like there, there was a very similar concern um, with actors. Like, you don't want to let this get too far down the road before you put your hand up and say, hey, lot guys, let's, let's discuss this. Because the companies will, will say to you, it's too late. This is what you agreed to back in 2023. And we now have a, an established process of how we use this technology, and we're not going to go backwards. So you have to fight for it now. Let me go to caller Jack in San Francisco. Jack, you're on. Hey, how's it going? Um, I'm a local San Francisco-based actor, a SAG AFTRA member. Um, I got my SAG card working here in San Francisco, 17 years in the union. Um, you know, the industry has really come to a halt um, when the SAG strike started. I was there in the regional Northern California 
SAG office here in San Francisco, putting together picket uh, signs and uh, standing in front of City Hall, in front of cable cars, getting the word out, really, really involved. And I'm really proud of uh, the way things turned out. The community really got together. I met actors from all over the Bay Area, and everybody was really on board with um, with the union and what uh, we needed to get done. Um, I'm really looking forward to the industry uh, bumping up again and uh, feature films coming back here to San Francisco. It's important for the community. It's important for the local economy, and I'm just thrilled with the results. Well, Jack, I'm glad to hear that you are so thrilled with the result. And you're bringing up some important things that I'd love to bring Wendy Lee into the conversation to talk about. Wendy Lee is entertainment business reporter, covers streaming services like Netflix, Amazon, Prime, and Apple TV Plus for the Los Angeles Times. Wendy, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So Jack is alluding to how things are going to start to come back. But there is this warning that it will not bounce back quickly, necessarily, or maybe even fully. Can you tell us why, what people are kind of expecting that you've spoken with? Yeah, I think that even prior to the strikes, we started to see um, see a slowdown in production. And uh, people that my colleagues and I have talked to in the industry are anticipating fewer shows, fewer movies getting made. Um, I think that you know, uh, last year um, we saw uh, what many in the industry term as the streaming correction when um, Netflix reported that uh, the number of subscribers was down in the first half of 2022, which caused um, investors to reevaluate how they view the business of these streaming services to judge them not not as not um, primarily on how many subscribers they're adding, um, but more so on whether like whether they're profitable. And we saw some streaming services shift in terms of adjusting their business models to um, to make uh, fewer programs so that uh, they can get a higher return on their investment. Yeah. So even though they might have sort of better conditions when they return to working, there may not be as much work, as much content development as there was before. Is that what you're essentially saying? Yeah, I think that uh, that people in this year are feeling that the uh, situation where you know during the streaming boom we had what some called peak TV that 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 time is ending. Well, this is Narite's money, power, and greed were the reasons these strikes occurred, and yippee to the actors and writers for getting such a great outcome and bringing the studio executives to their knees. Wendy, do you think they did? What have studios said about the deal that they struck? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think that executives have acknowledged that the business model has changed. Um, you know, in the past uh, with linear TV, there were chances for uh, actors, writers uh, to get, um, get additional money when a show got syndicated or when it uh, went to other channels, uh, when traveled abroad. But that changed under the streaming services where um, where. Uh, during the streaming boom, all the shows were just on one platform. And so um, the streamers would offer a large upfront payment, but um, there wouldn't really be that kind of mechanism that you had seen in linear TV for actors and writers to get additional money if the show um, traveled across different channels. And so I think there was an acknowledgement by the industry, uh, by studios that, you know, that um, they wanted that there needed to be some form of a change. 
And I think with these uh, new contracts, um, it does, uh, like, you know, like Eric mentioned, you know, address things that the studios did not initially want to address in the contracts, such as um, AI, um, particularly for writers. Yeah. So you also reported on estimates of the economic damage from the two strikes. I think I saw one that California's economy alone has lost more than $5 billion, but that nationwide is it's expected to be as high as $7 billion because there are big studios that are based in other places as well and other places where production takes place. But can you just kind of give us an overall picture of what you learned looking at the overall economic damage? Yeah. Um, so I spoke with Todd Holmes at Cal State Northridge, and he had estimated uh, the economic damage was $7 billion, um, in California, uh, factoring mm. the two strikes. And, um, you know, there are many crew members that have been out of work. These are people behind the camera, um, people that work on lighting or on, um, you know, on makeup, uh, costuming, um, like artists that uh, work on these sets. And, you know, for many of them, they've been out of work since, the, since early this year um, because, studios and productions were already winding down in anticipation of a writer's strike. And um, I've talked with uh, crew members that said they've taken on thousands of dollars of credit card debt just to make ends meet. And these are workers that are organized under IATSE and their contract does not come up until next year. But they, um, you know, they stood in solidarity with uh, the actors and writers as uh, they negotiated their contracts with the studios, even though, um, you know, those contracts do not directly apply to IATSE members. And um, and then you also have the prop houses and caterers and, um, you know, other entertainment um, adjacent businesses that rely on productions. And um, those uh, businesses have also suffered uh, during um, during the work, you know, during the uh, production um, productions being uh, sh- shut down. Yeah. So the economic impact goes both very deeply, but very far and wide all the way to the local businesses that you mentioned. We're talking with Wendy Lee, entertainment business reporter for the LA Times, Eric Haywood, writer, producer and director, and also a board member of the Writers Guild of America. And we're talking with you, our listeners, sharing your reaction to the strike's end, the gains that were made, questions about what maybe was not attained as well, things that you're hoping to see now that the strike is over, things that you're hoping it will mean as well, the end of the strike with regard to working conditions, but also the programs and films that you have missed. Email forum at kqed.org or call us at 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And now the strike is over. And it's like we're all returning to this magical world. Where actors can once again talk about their projects. Come with me and you'll be in a world of shameless self-promotion. It's okay. <laughs> That's Timothy Chalamet on Saturday Night Live referring to the end of the SAG after strike after 118 days and also alluding to some of the things that actors, some of the rules that actors had to observe during the strike. And joining us now is Chris Candy. He's an actor and member of SAG after based in Los Angeles. His credits include Six Feet Apart and Wedding Planners. Chris, really glad to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, this has been so educational to listen to everybody talk. <laughs> Oh, good. Um, I'm wondering, just, you know, thinking about what we just heard from Timothy, you know, there were a lot of rules that actors had to follow. Were there any that were particularly challenging for you that might not be so obvious to listeners? Um, No, but it was it was really like kind of figuring out what the rules were. You know, I wasn't in promotion on any film, but I was, you know, taken aback when I would see these major actors taking steps back from promoting major motion pictures um, at film festivals and whatnot. And um, it was inspiring and it definitely helped boast and bolster uh, solidarity with my fellow union members. But it's been a time to learn, you know, for myself. Hmm. And even now, you know, this uh, agreement just kind of washed up on our shores and we're trying to understand everything about it. And so it, it, I'm, I'm very much in a place of I don't know much. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm learning as I go. Yeah, that's great to hear because I am curious if, based on what you're hearing, this contract will address some of the stresses of being a, a working actor. You've said that you've never really made a living off of your TV acting. It was more on the commercial acting side, which wasn't necessarily sure. covered under SAG. Do you feel like, based on what you're hearing, you will be more likely to do that with TV acting? Well, I've always looked at my industry is a, a difficult industry. It's very challenging. There's a lot of uncertainty, but I've always been pro-union. I've been a SAG member since I was a child doing voiceover work and with AFTRA. When they got together, that was really lovely. Um, but, you know, being a union actor, you come across a lot of non-union work out there in the world and you come across a lot of non-union actors. And I always am optimistic in telling them that it is beneficial to be with SAG because they have your back. You know, I can speak to commercial in regards to residual, um, but it's also true for film and television. And one of the main sticking points to this was the confusion on where we were going to be paid off of this new service. Streaming is really what I'm speaking of. Yes. And, and that was what I really appreciated that Fran and, you know, Duncan were talking about at the beginning of the strike. It was this is a changing industry and we need to be with the times. And, and like everyone has been saying before this, we need to kind of get ahead of the ball, even though we don't fully know what it might be. Yeah. I'm wondering how we heard frequently how people were so sad not to be able to do the work they love. And I'm yeah. wondering how you were able to weather that. Well, um, it's interesting in a time like that, you look at the things you can do. And, uh, you know, I think with acting, actors act. So 
I was in my weekly acting class and, you know, talking with fellow actors and, um, you know, that helped because, you know, you have to keep your, uh, you know, chops sharp and, and keep working. Um, but it was difficult, you know, there was a lot of, on a smaller scale, this is a great example. There were short films that wanted to work with me, um, that I had to say no to because, they would have to go and go through SAG and to get an interim agreement was pretty challenging. And so those opportunities uh, went away. But uh, like I said, I'm happy with what's happened and, and I'm optimistic, but it is a time right now to kind of educate myself. And I think, you know, we have time before we can vote on this um, to really read what everything um, says. Yeah. It's almost like that is one of the the biggest benefits to this is both. It sounds like actors are are learning, but also the public is probably really learning what right. it means to be an actor in this industry today. Yeah. And, you know, I live down in Los Angeles and I could see the effects of my city uh, with the strike. You know, if this was going to affect any city, it would affect Los Angeles. And um, I am friends with writers and actors of all different um you know, successes and everyone felt it and everyone had a lot of questions. Chris Candy is an actor and member of SAG-AFTRA. His credits include Six Feet Apart and The Wedding Planners. Thanks so much for coming on, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, listener Curtis writes, I want to say how grateful we should all feel that organized labor has pushed forward in many sectors of the economy to bolster the strength and resilience of the American labor force. It's encouraging and even energizing to know the unionization is back and even taking hold in younger members of the workforce. Let me go to caller Julius in San Jose. Hi, Julius, you're on. Good morning. Um, I'd like to just add another um, sort of viewpoint to all this. Um, I've been a film composer for 25 years or so. I'm not part of SAG, but um, I was following the negotiations to a degree. Uh, for full disclosure, I'm also a founder of a uh, small not-for-profit organization. Uh, it's basically uh, about uh, trying to remove AI from everyday life, which is yeah. um, quite a bell, as you can imagine, but, uh, but we're making some progress. Um, anyway, um, the reason I love to hear that humans will be involved is basically the cultural impact of this long term. We talk about the economic damage that it took, um, and of course, it's extremely important uh, to represent those who are immediately impacted. But long term, taking the human element out of um, our entertainment, part of our culture, I, I think that was really in danger. Um, so, getting a human huh. part, keeping a human as part of the process. Yeah, um, I think that's ensuring that human experiences, personal experiences, will be worked into these scripts that we're enjoying when we watch them as movies or TV shows. Well, Julius, thanks for that point. And again, listeners, you can share your points by emailing forum at kqed.org, calling us at 866-733-6786, or posting on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. We're talking with Eric Haywood of the WGA and also a writer, producer, and director who's done TV shows like Empire and Law and & Order, and Wendy Lee of the LA Times, an entertainment business reporter there, also hearing from actors as well. I just... Eric, I'm wondering, you know, hearing Julius and his support, what do you hope are the biggest takeaways for the public about what it means to be a Hollywood writer and how, if they can, support creative work, good creative work? 
Well, one of the things that I took away from this whole experience is that, you know, you never know how the sort of court of public opinion is going to respond when, you know, any labor union goes on strike. And in particular, uh, a couple of Hollywood labor unions, because there's often this stereotype that everyone who works in Hollywood in any capacity is a millionaire who lives in a mansion with a swimming pool and they have a maid and a personal chef. And why are you even bothering going on strike? Because you're just greedy. You want more, you want more. And I think what both the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA were able to successfully convey to the general public is that we're, we're labor, we're workers just like everybody else. And the way that management treats us is not that different than the way you know the, the truck drivers get treated or the auto workers get treated or the Starbucks baristas get treated by their upper management. And I think that really resonated. You know, journalists are seeing their jobs sort of disappear. Um, um, every walk of life sort of like in some form or fashion was able to, to see themselves reflected in, in these labor strikes. It didn't help that, you know, everyone's favorite TV shows and movies were also sort of like caught up in the web of, of you know, these labor battles. But I think on, on the human level, the general public was able to recognize that, you know, the, the, the same way that Hollywood exi- uh, studios were treating its labor is not that different from, from, from pretty much any other walk of life. Nurses, uh, school teachers, like you could, the, the list just sort of goes on and on. So there have been times in the past when the Writers Guild has gone on strike and it has not enjoyed a fraction of the public support or even the, the support of other unions, frankly, yes. that we this time around. And I think yes. the big change, the big sea change was everyone recognized, everybody Everybody knows what streaming is, whether you work in the business or not. You know what Netflix is, you know what Disney Plus is. And when we begin to explain how streaming has drastically impacted our industry, both as writers and as actors, people get it. It's not like when, when streaming first emerged a, a, a decade or so ago, and people were like, well, who's going to bother watching TV on their phones? Why is it such a big deal? Why do you, why do you need to fight for this? People get it now. So, so that helped a lot. But, but ultimately, I think uh, uh, for the writers, and I'm assuming also for the actors, it was the core union membership standing together and realizing that the only way that we were going to be able to win is through solidarity that I think made, made the difference. Well, I want to bring in Marcellus Burton, who's on the line, an actor and musician based in L.A. who's been in My Own Mecca and the TV show Blind Spotting. Marcellus, thanks for joining us. No problem. You are actually, I understand, on the WGA picket lines um, and that you have done SAG-eligible work, of course, with Blind Spotting and so on, but you haven't joined SAG. And I'm just curious what sort of stops you? What are the things that are obstacles to joining? Yeah, and thank you for asking the question. Um, I could say in my experiences so far, it's been navigating, trying to find agency and representation. And, you know, given the state of where we are as actors currently, it's been hard to, you know, scrummage up the money to join SAC after, you know. And so going the route of maybe representation helps with that cushion to transition as an actor into unionization. Yeah. And even before you got your start as a background actor, like so many, this contract does include provisions to better protect background actors. I believe that uh, wages will increase by 11% and so on. Yes. And it'll go up from there. But I'm wondering if you can tell us what most people don't know about what it means to be a background actor on set. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
in my experiences of being a background actor, usually background actors are there first on set with a lot of the production team. And they're, you know, there to help set the environment for the actors to come into. So it's a very pivotal part of the process for background actors to be, you know, compensated given that they're on set maybe for 10, 12, 14 hours a day with the rest of the team. And so I think with everything going on, of course, we're still looking into the, you know, I would say paperwork with everything going on here, but it's been a process to say the least. Yeah. Do you feel like actors like you are entering a more secure world as a result of these negotiations and deals that were made? Or are you really not sure? I feel as if we are moving in the right direction, but of course there's still uncertainty. Um, I think with the agreement, we're still looking over the, you know, seeing what exactly it all means for everyone with, especially with AI and Mr. Haywood has been enlightening me a lot about understanding what's going on exactly with the agreement. So, you know, personally, I can say I have hope, but we still have to get the ball rolling here to see, you know, how things will move forward. Well, Richard writes, oh, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. And we're talking with Marcellus Burton and also Wendy Lee and Eric Haywood. I mean, a Kim. Richard writes, do we know the permanent impact of both strikes? What the permanent impact of both strikes on viewers? I think both sides overplayed their hand to the point where I'm not really interested in watching new movies or TV. Not, not entirely sure what that means. But Wendy, I wonder if you have any insights into permanent impacts of both strikes on viewers, potentially? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, as, as mentioned earlier, that prior to the strikes, the streaming services were already seeing a slowdown in subscriber growth. And, um, and that because of that, you know, investors have also um, changed the way, or Wall Street investors have changed the way in which they view the streaming services where they value profit. Um, they want to see these streaming services become more profitable. And most of them are not profitable, um, except for Netflix, which is profitable. And so um, when subscriber growth slows down and the companies are looking for more ways to make profit, they raise streaming prices. And so that is uh, the impact that is that will happen to viewers. Again, you know, the, the slowdown happened prior to the strikes. But I think that um, most analysts I've talked to anticipate seeing more uh, streaming prices increase in the future. Um, one one uh, third-party firm I talked to, the Convergence Research Group, said um, that uh, so far this year, um, prices on average at the major streaming services have risen 12% on average. So uh, I think, you know, for viewers, expect to see fewer shows, fewer new movies, and um, and an increase in streaming prices. Hmm. David writes, the abusive power behind Hollywood is now the streaming services. Consumers have no choice for accessing most content except overpriced mega corporate streaming services like Hulu. We need to focus on anti-consumer practices of the major streaming services that now control the marketplace. Eric, that is one area I didn't have a chance to ask you to just share with us because it was such a major issue that writers wanted better residuals from streaming. Um, did they get that and how, if you could just briefly outline? 
that. Yeah, yeah. There were a couple of uh, of major sort of wins uh, for writers in the world of streaming. Um, one thing that companies have been notoriously uh, secretive about is what we call streaming data transparency, which is basically viewership numbers. Yes. You know, like when you when you watch broadcast television, ABC or NBC, you know, the, the Nielsen ratings still exist. And those are meaningful because they're they're how uh, uh, networks set their advertising rates. But typically, you know, a, a company like Netflix obviously doesn't have uh, advertisers. So they say, well, there's no need for us to tell to, to share our viewership data with anybody It's proprietary information. The way we do our calculus for how who's what what what's a hit and what's not is our business. So what they will do is every once in a while they'll say, "Hey, this movie that we just dropped is the most streamed Netflix original movie or TV show of the year or in the last five years." And when you ask them to quantify that or prove it, they basically say, "Trust us." <laughs> and and so it's been difficult for writers to say uh, uh, to these companies, "If you write a project that becomes a hit, you should be entitled to a little bit of profit sharing." And because the studios have have so fiercely guarded that information, it's been hard to make to make headway in that realm uh, until now. Uh, one of the one of the big wins that we got was streaming data transparency, and it is not perfect. It is not completely analogous to the the, the Nielsen system, but basically we we have what we what we've done is what people call we've sort of cracked the door open to the idea that that streamers will now begin to share on a limited mm. basis, and hopefully this will expand going forward, some of their uh, uh, viewership numbers for their original content. There's also a performance-based bonus, which means if something is a hit, and we're defining a hit as if, if a, let's say you, you Netflix releases a new movie, and it is, if it's watched by 20% of their, their, their uh, subscription uh, audience in the first 90 days, that is what constitutes a success or a hit. And then the writer of that project or writers are then, therefore entitled to a financial bonus. So it's the yeah. first time we've ever gotten our, our toe in the water of, of performance-based profit sharing. And that's one of those things that, you know, once you gain it, it can't be taken away. You know, it can only sort of get better from there. So, so the streaming world is still sort of nebulous, but we've sort of began to enter, we turned a corner in terms of, uh, uh, allowing writers to, to share in the success of projects that they create. Well, I think Turned a Corner is a good way to sum it up. Writer, producer, director Eric Haywood, thank you. LA Times reporter Wendy Lee, thank you as well. Marcellus Burton, actor and musician in LA, appreciate having you on. And my thanks to Chris Candy and Eric Goins for joining us earlier as well. My thanks always to listeners, to Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.